about the house that you've all built in Bogota, he said, I have other cities for you. <laughs> Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, we give you thanks uh, that through the resources of our church, through the resources of people and time and money, we were able to see transformation. And uh, everyone that would participate in this, their lives have never been the same. And um, we thank you that that house is a monument to the practical expression of the love of Jesus. And we're also thankful for this video, for the members of our, our, our church team that are beginning to say, let's get the message out in film, let's get the message out in music. And uh, Lord, we ask that you would establish that in a fresh way for us. Every move of God also is accompanied by the arts and by the medium. So we want to we wanna jump on what you're doing. We ask now that as we study your word together, that you would reveal your heart to us by your word. And that by your word, you would reveal our hearts as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going this summer uh, through an assignment that I felt the Lord gave me. And the assignment was to speak to you about living in a, in a true happiness, in a relentless joy. And to experience what it is not to have it be circumstantially based or superficial, but to have a fundamental and foundational happiness. And so today we come to Psalm 23, which is one of my... My favorite psalms, but it's a funny thing is most people don't really read Psalm 23 until they're dead. This is the psalm people read at their funerals. And uh, so we, we almost are so familiar with it in that context that we have missed how powerful it is for the living. So let's read Psalm 23 together. Um, I love it when you read with me. We've kind of reoriented things, and it's on the front of your worship folder. This is the English Standard Version. So we'll read all of Psalm 23 together in unison. Let's read God's Word. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Isn't it, even as you read that, if your spirit is alive, this tends to be an incredibly comforting psalm. It just brings a peace to your spirit because your spirit in union with the Holy Spirit resonates with the truth of God's word that's here. Now, the, I want to start off looking at this psalm by thinking through what I think is one of the key phrases here. And one of the key phrases is, he restores my soul. Now, 
I want you to think with me, and, and you know, this is Sunday morning, I want you to put your thinking caps on with me, uh, and, and go a little deeper with this, and think through what does the Old Testament, what does the biblical view of soul tell us? The word soul in Hebrew is the word nefesh. It is a very, very powerful concept when the Bible uses the word soul. If I boil it down and, and kind of make it in a succinct way, basically, the biblical idea of your soul is the seat or the center of your personality. The soul is where you are uniquely you. You are what has come together to make you, you. It is, the soul is the truest sense of self. It is who you are. So when the Bible says God is restoring your soul, he's saying that something has happened to your soul that has corrupted it, that has changed it, that has modified it, and that has made it to where it's not according to its original design. What I mean by this is that your personality has integrated things that are not true of your design, that are not really true of you, but you have believed them to be true, and so the Lord has to reveal to you what your true personality is, and He has to cut away or chip away that which is not really you. Now, what I mean by this is found in the way that the Gospels explain the agenda of Satan against your soul. The Gospels explain that Satan's agenda, where, which you might see all kinds of manifestations in your life of the Satanic agenda, but the goal of everything he does is to render you passive so that you encounter life and God and you encounter the things that are going on around you in a passive, not in an active way. Now, what I, to explain this a little further, your original design did not include fear. The original design of your personality did not include fear. How do I know that? Because the Bible says God has not given you a spirit of fear. So fear is an add-on but not an upgrade. And you have passively believed that it is, a, it is part of who you are. And you have passively believed the lie that fear is your friend. That it will prepare you, that it will shelter you, that it will protect you. When all the time, fear is a spirit that is looking to destroy you. Now this same passivity can show up in other ways where you begin to believe lies about your personality because it's been spoken in your family over and over again. For example, my family can trace its roots. My grandfather looks just like an, a red-headed Irishman, so we trace our roots back to Ireland. So he has two strikes against him. He's Irish, so he, he, he always excused his bad temper, his ill temper, saying, well, I'm just Irish. And, or if that didn't work, he'd go, I'm just red-headed. So he, would, he, would, he passively accepted that he had a bad temper, that, temper, that he had an anger problem, that he, he was short with people, he was ill-tempered with people because it's just who I am. 
Now, if you listen carefully, most of us make passive statements to defend our bad behavior. We say things like, well, I couldn't help it. That's a passive statement. This is who I am. I have passively, rece passively received a lie about my personality. So if God, as the psalmist says, is right now restoring your soul, then he is cutting away from you, he is chipping away what Satan has passively led you to believe is true of you. Now you get to participate or you get to resist. One of my favorite ways to look at the restoration of the soul is that the Bible says that you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. In other words, he's the artist and you're his masterpiece. Amen. Amen. So let's take that and let's say he's the sculptor and you're the sculpture. But in order for a sculptor to present a sculpture, they have to chip away the marble or the granite or the stone that they're working in. One of my favorite uh, things, I believe it was Michelangelo, said David, that statue, if you've ever seen the sculpture of David that's so beautifully chiseled, that's, that sculpture, he said, it was in there. I just had to get rid of the parts that wasn't David. And so what I'm asking you today, if you truly want to be happy, if you want a relentless joy, then you have to submit to the chisel. Amen. Amen. Or else the masterpiece is hidden behind all kinds of rock. Well, that's what God is up to. He's restoring His original design in you. Trials are for that purpose even times of storms in your life, even times of troubles. These are not times when you lose your joy. This is when your joy is defined. And so what happens is you have to also understand the biblical idea of heart. For example, the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, interchanges the words soul and heart. But the heart has a very specific meaning. The heart is not merely your emotions. When you talk about, in the Bible, when the writers talk about heart, they're talking about all three aspects. Your mind, your thoughts, talking about your emotions, your feelings, talking about your will, your decision making. And see, when the, when the heart is in alignment, then what you believe is expressed by what you feel, and what you believe and feel is expressed by your decisions. But when the heart is divided, when the heart is broken, when the heart is severed in its connection from the source of life and joy, then the, then the heart is in chaos. The heart is in crisis. We call this brokenheartedness. We, uh, the brokenness that we all feel in our hearts. And this is what God wants to restore. This is what God wants to, to in a sense, recreate and replace. A, a new heart. A right spirit, a, a place where what you believe and what you feel and what you decide are all in alignment. Now, if you listen to me this, I can save you some therapy money. Your heart is the deepest commitments that you have. 
Your heart is what you are committed to. Not what you say you're committed to. What you are committed to. Your heart is the mechanism by which you decide what you trust and what you don't trust. Your heart is where the flow of love comes from. And even though people say you can't help who you love, which is a passive statement, you do choose who you love. You choose it on the basis of what you value. You choose it on the basis of what you're committed to. You choose what you love on the basis of what you trust. I can love people I don't trust, but I can only love them because I am loved by God. I cannot give them what I do not have. Now, I am closest to the people that I trust the most. They are the ones who are the best friends, the most intimate friends. I am not intimate friends with someone I cannot trust. Trust is always earned. It's the nature of trust. And if, and if you've seen it in the past, if anyone has ever betrayed your trust, it is always hard to trust them again. The loss of trust and the rebuilding of trust is much longer and harder than the initial expression of trust. And that it's fascinating, right, when you think about it? Your heart is yours. This is the place where if the enemy has rendered you passive, you have let him. But it is the place that God wants to restore. It's the place he wants to rebuild. It's the place he wants to recreate. And when the heart begins to understand this idea of trust and, and that you have a choice in regards to what you trust and what you do not trust, then you realize there's great power in your life. There's a power to be happy. There's a power to be joyful. But it all depends on whether or not what you trust is trustworthy. As a matter of fact, one of the best, I think, definitions of sin is sin is disordered love. You love what's not worthy to be loved, and you don't love what is worthy of your love. And so when you reorder the loves you, and by or on the basis of what you trust, things change. So here's what I'd like you to think about with me from Psalm 23. I don't really care anymore, and I don't really enjoy anymore people who tell me they trust God when they don't. I remember one time this guy after a service came up to me, and he raced up to me, and he's going to, you know, there's so many things I guess he was trying to prove to me. But one of them is he came up to me and invaded my personal space, which I always hate. You know, when those close talkers... You know, I just don't enjoy that whatsoever. I tell him, get back in Jesus' name or, you know, whatever. But he comes up in my personal space, right up in my face, and he goes, Pastor, I just want you to know that nobody trusts God more than me. I'm like, are you kidding me? you got to be kidding me, because his whole body was twitching, you know, and, and, and you could just see in his eyes anxiety and worry and fear. I'm like, you mouth the words, but your heart betrays you. Now, here's, what I, here's why I'm saying this to you, and, I, and I, I'm saying it kind of bluntly because I want you to get this. You have, to, you have to unlearn some things. You have to unlearn some things and, and recognize 
You saying you trust God is not the same as your heart saying, I trust his promises. See, the mouth can say, I trust God, but the heart alone will commit itself in the midst of trials and difficulties and, and expectations and all of those things. The heart will reveal what you really trust. And what I'm telling you is absolutely trustworthy for your heart to commit to are the promises of God. If God has said it, he will prove it. He has no issue with proving himself trustworthy. And so when you say, I trust God, I think it would be better to say, my heart relies upon, depends upon, and trusts in his promises. And what David says in Psalm 23, he says there are five promises that he relies on. And I think today these are five promises that your heart can wrap itself around and when you hold on to them, you will see the fruition in your life and the fulfillment of the joy you were meant for. Now, I want to say it to you this way real quickly. What it means to be restored in your soul is that you will come to a place where you know you were made for. This is the will of God. This is the shepherd's heart. The shepherd's heart is not to make you into something you will not recognize. The heart of the shepherd is, is revealed in that moment when you go, this is what I was made for. I had a friend up in uh, the North Georgia mountains. He was a pastor and went through a couple of years of the worst time of his life. And he got involved in the College of Prayer, which we're involved in. And we went together to uh, Colombia, and then we went to Peru, and we did these, these incredible crusades. And we were in Peru together. We saw over 500 instantaneous miracles of healing. And my friend was seeing blind eyes open, and he was seeing you know, the lame walk, and he was seeing deliverance of demons left and right. And, and uh, after all those years of... of, of not seeing ministry that he wanted to see, he was, you could see he was in his element. I called him the sledgehammer. You know, there's no demon that could stand against him. It was just powerful. And I went over to him, his name was Hal, and I said, Hal, how are you doing? He goes, Mike, this is what I was made for. I'll never forget that. See, Jesus had been, Jesus had been restoring his soul and in that moment, his soul was crying out, this is what I was made for, only in a North Georgia accent. Because the soul does have an accent, I've found. Well, the five promises are this. And if there's any way you could, you could record them for yourself and you could start making these anchors for your soul, making these the pillars of your heart. It will make all the difference. The first is very, it's kind of a simple one. All of them are. But David says this, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack. I'll have everything I need. Would you say this with me? The Lord is my shepherd. Say that one more time. The Lord is my shepherd. See, this is such a beautiful thing that you begin to be tested in this right from the beginning. If you want spiritual muscle to see your needs met, you have to also have spiritual exercise. 
Let me tell you two stories of a man who got to a place that I'd like to see each of you get to. When he was, there was a man by the name of George Mueller who was a pastor. He was German. He was called by God to go uh, and pastor a church in England. So he's a German pastor, went to England. When he got to England, the Lord said to him, do not take a salary. And so he had eight kids and all those mouths to feed. And uh, the Lord said, I will provide. So he's got his eight kids around the table. His wife's there. He's there. There's no food in the house. There's no money for food in the house. And so he looks at his children and says, children, we're going to give thanks. And so they bowed their heads and they they gave thanks. And as they prayed, they gave thanks. And as they prayed and finished the prayer, a knock was on the door and lunch was provided. Now, some of you might say, why would God do it that way? Well, he did it that way to develop spiritual muscle. He did it that way to teach Mueller to trust that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. Because the goal of God was not just so that George Mueller would not have lunch every day. The goal of God was to get George Mueller to a place in prayer where he could change the world. Listen to this. Mueller became the guardian, the provider for all the orphans in England. Over 6,000 orphans were provided a table, food, clothes, and shelter through the prayers of George Mueller. Now, one of the other stories, and anything, God, anything that Mueller asked for the orphans, he received. Another story of Mueller that I want you to hear, and then I'm going to try to tie them together for you. Mueller became very famous because this, the, his provision for the orphans became world-known. World And his prayer life became world known. There's a a biography of him that's worth reading. But it tells a story that he was invited to Canada to a conference, and he had to sail from England to Canada. And he was to sail, I believe, out of Plymouth, and Plymouth was socked in with fog. And and if they didn't leave soon, he was going to be too late to get to to the conference. He knew the captain was a Christian, so he went to the captain and said, Sir, let's pray that the Lord will lift the fog. The captain looked at him like he was a crazy man and said, no prayer is going to lift the fog. And uh, Mueller said, that's okay, let's pray together. And so Mueller began to pray, and when he finished praying, he looked at the captain and he said, Captain, don't bother to pray, you have no faith. You don't believe anyway. And he said, and secondly, the Lord has already told me that he has lifted the fog, so your prayer is unnecessary. So they were down in the, the captain's so he had no way of knowing the fog had lifted, but the Spirit had told him that the fog had lifted. They went up and there was no more fog in Plymouth Harbor. He made it to his conference on time. But here's what I want you to know. You, can, you will not have the power to lift the fog till you also have the prayers to pray for the food. Amen. Amen. So you don't start off with power for the fog. Amen. You start off depending for the food. And you began to see the groceries come in. The first thing that our Jesus taught us to pray was what? Give us our daily bread, not take away the fog. That's advanced. In other words, those are spiritual muscles. God could entrust him 
with the needs of all the orphans because he trusted God for all his needs. So many of us want to see God do great things, but we don't believe him for the small things. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. He's trying to teach you to follow the shepherd, not lead the shepherd. Now, the second of the promises is connected with the restoration of your soul, but but this is another aspect of that. David was a fallen man. David was a king who, who broke all the commands. And what we, begin, what we begin to understand and what I'd like you to know is you cannot restore yourself once fallen. Regret doesn't restore you. Remorse doesn't restore you. Only the cross of Jesus Christ restores you. The, the same remedy that makes you a Christian is the remedy when you fail or fall that restores you to intimacy. And it is God's pleasure and His joy and the thing He longs to do is to lift you up even when you've stumbled, even when you've fallen. Um, One of the issues that many of us have is that we continue to believe that we are responsible for ourselves and we just need God to come along and help us carry that responsibility. David is saying here, The one responsible for you is God. You need to submit to that. In my mind, the promise here means that I have to make an exchange. And that exchange is that my life is no longer my own. The restoration of my weaknesses, the restoration of my past, the restoration from my sins, my bad decisions is not mine to undo. It's mine to lean into the restorer. He restores my soul. He restores what others have stolen. Can I, I want you to understand something about heaven just quickly. Because you're not just, this isn't the only life you will live. This is not all there is. Do you know what heaven is? It's where everything you've sacrificed and lost will be restored to you. Why else would Jesus say, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven? And don't store up treasures here where moth and rust and corrupt and thieves break in and steal. There's something waiting for you every time you sacrifice, every time you give up something, even when you give up your rights and you surrender yourself to the shepherd then you find that he can restore even what the locusts have eaten. But you won't restore yourself. I love this this psalm for one reason. uh, I believe David is rehearsing the whole history of his family. And his great-great-great-great-grandfather was named Jacob. And Jacob, in the last days of his life, when he's blessing Joseph's sons, says to them, may the Lord who has been my shepherd. That's a testimony. This is the testimony I want you to have at the end of your life. The Lord who has been my shepherd. I love testimonies at any age. I mean, it's great teenagers, great, you know, old, old fogies like me. You know, it's great, all of that. 
But isn't it amazing when someone who is close to death says, the Lord has been my shepherd all the way. We used to sing this hymn, all the way my Savior leads me. It's that idea that, that I will mess up. There are times where my trust will be revealed to be faulty, and yet he still restores me because he's taken responsibility for me. See, I've exchanged the responsibility of Mike, and I've given it over to God because only he can really carry this burden. Amen. And he has faithfully carried this burden. The third one, then, is this. If, it, if he's taken over the responsibility of your life, then you must begin to submit to his leadership. So it's the promise that whether you know it or not, he's leading you in every step that you're taking. Now, I grew up in a tradition in the Christian church that said God doesn't speak anymore, that he only spoke in his scriptures. And so I was trained to be someone who studied carefully the Scriptures, deduced the principles of Scriptures, and then applied them to my life. And this has been helpful to me. But what was life-changing is when I discerned the voice of the shepherd. I mean, do you know that you have lots of voices of shepherds speaking to you at all times? Anxiety is a shepherd. It's not a good shepherd. But it will lead you. Anger is a shepherd. Lust is a shepherd. Unbelief is a shepherd. Depression is a shepherd. But, but if you listen to those voices, they will not lead you in paths of righteousness. They'll lead you to destruction. And so it becomes important that in your heart you discern the voices and that you only allow the voice of the good shepherd. Because he is speaking. Now, he will not contradict his word. And he uses the community of faith. He uses the church to help you discern truth in your inward being. He uses circumstances. He uses all those things. But Jesus said, I know my sheep. I call them by name. They hear my voice and they follow me. What friendship have you ever had where you didn't speak? I'll tell you this. My primary calling in life is is as a man of prayer. It's my primary call. I love preaching and teaching and leading and pastoring. I love all that. But primarily, I sit at Jesus' feet as a person of prayer. But here's what I've learned. I spend more time listening than talking. I spend more time hearing his voice than him having to hear my voice. Because I don't, I believe what the scripture says that we don't know how to pray as we ought. And so the spirit of intercession, the Holy Spirit interceding within our spirit cries, even with groans too deep for words, even the things you have no words for, but you have the deep feelings of, he's praying. While you're praying, I've learned to hear his voice. And so I would much rather, I would much rather spend my prayer time hearing my Savior, my shepherd's voice. Because he calls me by name. I mean, I could tell you the number of times 
particularly in the beginning of learning to hear his voice, where the way he says my name is not like anyone else says my name. You know, you can love your mom and your dad, you can love uh, coaches and teachers, but their voice does not need to be in your head. Because Satan can masquerade as a familiar voice. Now, if I could put this in more dire terms. If any of us here knew there was an escaped serial killer roaming Rockland County, we would immediately lock our doors, lock all the windows. We would make sure we were safe. And yet, the Bible calls Satan a serial killer. And we allow his voice into our secret place. Do you know when you call yourself stupid, that's not you. You know, when you're told, when you look in the mirror and you go ugly, it's not you. It comes from the father of lies. And you have passively let the killer in. Don't do it anymore. The fourth of these, and this one I love. I mean, all of these are simple in a way, but I love these so much. It is his promise to preserve me. See, no matter what I am facing, there is the promise of his preservation. Look at what it says. He prepares a table for me. That's his manifest presence. That's his provision, his preservation of me. Where does he do it? In the face of my enemies. Now, maybe you would say, oh, God, just take the enemies away. But that isn't what the scripture says. It says God manifests his presence and provision right in front of your enemies. <laughs> so this preservation promise is this. Are any of you or have any of you gotten frustrated with life? Have you got a friction in your life and tension and a stress? And you know you're hitting a wall, but you know there's more beyond it. Well, that frustration, that tension, that friction is merely God revealing that you have reached your own limitations, that the anointing of the past season is not enough for the anointing for the next season. And what does he say in Psalm 23? He gives you the upgrade. You are due an upgrade, and the upgrade is the anointing where he anoints your head with oil and your cup overflows. So instead of getting all upset that you're frustrated, go, I need to become 2.0 or 8.16, whatever the upgrade is at this point. All right, now, please listen to me on this. The last one, the last one, the last promise is this, goodness and mercy are chasing after you. All right now, this is what this means. You gotta, you've got to listen. Many of us think, I've got to have something good to bring to God. And many of us think, I've got to do something good for God. We have it totally wrong. You, you bringing something good to God is like a child bringing a mud pie and calling it pecan pie. There is no good in you that is not God's to begin with. There's no good that you can produce. You're not a factory. You're a warehouse of His goodness. 
See, what he's been doing all your life, and you think, I've disappointed you, God. I've disqualified myself. I'm not good enough. And you think all those lies, again, passively believing what someone else says about your soul who doesn't have anything good for you anyway. You stop running from the love of God. You stop running from the goodness of God and you'll realize He's not angry. He's not disappointed. He delights in you. And what you began to find, many of us, it's interesting, many of us are more frightened of love than we are His holiness. We will try to clean up our act in His holiness, but we'll run from His love. Because His love is overwhelming. It's, it's not something you deserve. It's not something you can control. It's a tidal wave of His love. And when you stop running and you turn around, you find He's been chasing you your whole life. See, these are the promises. When I go to God, I don't, I'm not hearing criticism. I'm not hearing disappointment. I'm not hearing anger. I'm hearing the song He sings over me. Just a little while ago, uh, after one of the services, a very young girl, maybe teenage, less than teenage years, came up and she had been through a really, really hard thing and she was weeping. And I don't know about any of you, but, but when I see people in pain, I, I so long to see them healed. I so long to see them comforted. But see, if, if you think you have some goodness to give to the pain of others, you're fooling yourself. You'll just give them cliches. You'll give them coping mechanisms. You'll say, oh, it's okay. You're making me uncomfortable with your pain. I mean, you'll do all kinds of things that will do nothing for them. But if you know this last truth, then whoever it is that's crying, it's the goodness of God chasing after them. It's the mercy of God coming upon them. That's what transforms pain into, into power. That's what makes beauty out of ashes. That's what takes all of your mourning and turns it into dancing. Not your goodness, His goodness. Not your deserving, but actually your undeserving activates His mercy. Will you stand with me? I'd like you to take, if you're right-handed, I'd like you to take your right hand and, and I'd like you to close your eyes, but grab hold in the, in a, I see this prophetically right now. Grab hold of the shepherd's staff. And, 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 and there's a sense in which this is both a weapon of protection and it's also a standard by which we, we begin to put we begin to put our stake in the ground. And I'd like you to say with me, the Lord is my shepherd. Come on, take your staff for me. Do it prophetically. Let your heart sometimes by doing something in the spirit, it transforms even the way the heart functions. Take, it, take hold and say, the Lord, the Lord is my shepherd. Now notice that's a singular pronoun. It's not our shepherd. It's not plural. But it's also possessive. The Lord wants you to possess Him 
as your shepherd. In other words, you rightfully belong to him as his sheep. But he wants you willingly to say, shepherd, you belong to me as my shepherd. See, something happens when that happens, because now you're saying, I'm putting my whole weight on this. I'm saying, because you're my shepherd, I will not lack. The groceries are coming. You know, you're my shepherd. You are restoring what I've lost. You are chipping away what binds me. And you are opening me up to my destiny and my potential. I'm hearing your voice, no other voice. You will lead me where I cannot go on my own. And you will preserve me in front of my enemies. Your anointing as my shepherd is what I want. And I'll never run from your goodness again. Lord, we seal what you're doing. Our hearts, our hearts are binding to your promises. I really see the Lord wants to take you to where you say to the fog, be gone. He wants to take you there, but it's a step at a time. Believe Him. Believe Him for the groceries and then the fog is nothing. Jesus, you're such a good shepherd. We seal this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we've got some prayer uh, ministers here. We have some of our staff and our leaders. I, some, I really believe sometimes you just need to verbalize your commitment of trust and your heart will follow. So whether it's you as a couple or individual, I would love for you just to have a moment or two of prayer with some of our guys up here. And just, just to leave your distrust and unbelief here and move out in trust. But we're so glad you were here today. May God bless you and have a tremendous week. We'll see you next week.